You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Be seated. Turn to Genesis chapter 2 if you don't mind. Uh, Genesis chapter 2. If you are a guest today, we're glad that you're here. We've been walking through the book of Genesis. Uh, we're going to be walking through Genesis 1 through 11. Not today. I've already covered uh, Gen- Genesis 1, first part of chapter 2. Today we're going to pick it up in verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2. Uh, just as an announcement, uh, next Sunday we will have uh, Jonathan Waggett and his wife Sarah. Uh, that is our prospective worship pastor. Our worship team got to uh, have a, a meal with him Tuesday night. He and his wife uh, got to ask a lot of questions, got to know him pretty well that night. He will be with us next Sunday. Uh, he will be leading worship, both Sunday morning worship services. He'll also be leading the practice on Saturday with our worship team. And then what we'll be asking you to do is, uh, especially the membership of our church, to come back on Sunday night at 7.30 for a call membership meeting. Uh, to seek your approval and extending a call to Jonathan to come and be our worship pastor. So next Sunday, uh, when you see him, walk up, introduce yourself to him. Uh, share your name with him, uh, and, and I know that would be helpful for him. And also be praying for him and his wife, Sarah. They greatly appreciate that. Genesis chapter 2, let's pick it up in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of heaven and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that, he, that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman, brought her to man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Father, we bow before you this morning to thank you for the power and the beauty of your word. But, Father, it doesn't leave us in a state of of confusion. It is clear as to what you are trying to show us this morning. Father, it shows us that you are the creator. You spoke all things into existence, and therefore you own all things, and therefore you have the purpose, the ability, and the right to set principles, to define what is true, and expect the cosmos to run within your confines and within your glory including humanity. So, Father, the big life questions that we wrestle with, the big life questions that people in this room and those watching online are wrestling with this morning, we can find the answers to those questions in the opening chapters of your book. Father, it's here we find what our purpose is. It's here we find our identity. It's here we find that we are created with great value. It is here that we find that through your great power and through your majesty, You called the entire universe into existence out of nothing. And Father, it's from that place that we are called to live, not to ourselves, but to you and for you, surrendered in all areas of our life through what Christ did on the cross and redeeming us to yourself, reconciling us that we're to live our life in your will. Father, guide us in your word this morning. We have some difficult verses that we have to to wrestle with this morning and follow more than just the words that are coming out of my mouth that the Holy Spirit would take take your word, apply it, that we would not just be hearers, but we'd be doers also. We ask all this in the strong and powerful name of Christ. Amen. I told you that in the weeks past that a lot of the chaos that we see in our culture and in our world right now has its roots in a misunderstanding of who we are as human beings uh, a denial of God's existence, uh, the idea that that as human beings we are the center of the universe and therefore we decide what is true, we decide what is right, we decide what is wrong, and, 
And if there is a God out there somewhere, we relegate him to running the universe if he exists at all. But as far as what's happening on this planet, we make the decisions, we call the shots, and we determine our own destiny. That is the worldview that you are getting inundated with every day of your life. But what we've hopefully been able to show you in the book of Genesis is that the God of creation, the God who has majestic, incredible power, stepped into time and space, and he simply spoke, and he hung the stars and the moon and the sun and this planet in place. And not only did he speak it into existence, but he brought form, function, meaning, and purpose to the entire universe. So oftentimes we think of God as creator, but we don't often think of him as, as setting the parameters as how the universe is going to run, that he is absolutely in control of it, but there is a purpose by which he created all things. We've also learned that the pinnacle of his creation, the pinnacle, is humanity. Now, that doesn't mean that you always feel like that you are that centerpiece of God's creation, but make no mistake about it, who you are who God knit you together in your mother's womb. Psalm, the psalmist tells us that, that you've been knit together in your mother's womb. And the intimacy of that moment when God had his hands all up in your life at that moment of conception, that, that God was close to us, that God was working in us even at that moment, that God was, was deciding who you were going to be, the kind of person you were going to be, what you would look like. Your unique personality, where there is no one else on the planet, even if you have a twin, that twin is not like you. you even though you may look alike, your personalities are very different. That God ordained that, structured that, called you into existence, and you are a unique creation of his. And the further we get away from an understanding that God was that intimately involved in our mother's womb, at the moment we were knitted together, the further we get away from that premise, the more chaotic your life will be. Now, as we look at today's text in chapter 2, we have a few challenges that we, we need to, uh, well, to kind of get to. Because in chapter 1, we saw God in six days, and I believe that to be six literal days of creation. Now, just, just to reiterate this, God didn't need 24 hours. He didn't need six 24-hour days to call the universe into existence. God could have done it in six days, which he did. He could have done it in six hours. He could have done it in six minutes. God could have spoke and created all that we see with order and function literally in a second if he chose to. So it's not, it's not the, the issue is whether God could or could not. The fact is, is that God did, and he did it with great power, great beauty, and great majesty. And we looked at those six days of creation. And then culminating in chapter 2, those first few verses there of, of, of God deciding to rest. And I told you that, that, that that's not God it's like swinging up a hammock somewhere because he was so worn out by doing the six days of creation that he needed to rest. The God of this universe doesn't need anything. But what God chose to do is he chose to cease his creative work as a model for not only the Israelites, but for all of us that we all need to take a break, that we all need rest, that we're not gods unto ourselves, that we need rest. Now, where we find ourselves today in verses 4 through 25 is we have a, well, a problem. And some of you have already brought it to my attention. Matter of fact, two or three of you over the last few weeks has been anticipating this text because here's the question that I got. Okay, so in chapter 1, we have those six days of creation, and on the seventh day, God ceased from his work. And in each of those days, we see how God created uh, light. We see how he created the atmosphere. We see how he created the vegetation on day three. And each day, we have a different part of God's creation. But then we get to chapter 2, verses 4 through 25, and it appears as though the author of Scripture, Moses, is presenting us with a whole different creation account. As a matter of fact, it seems like Moses has already forgotten the days of creation, and he, he gets it all mixed up. It's almost like we have man created before vegetation, which happened on day three, and we know that, that Adam and Eve were created on day six. And so when we read chapter 2, verses 4 and following, we, we come to the text and go, wait a minute, we have a, we have a contradiction here. Now, you've heard me say before, so it's worth saying again, that any contradiction you see in Scripture, that is not God causing confusion because we know he's not the author of confusion. If we think we see a contradiction, that contradiction lies with us, not with God's Word. 
okay? It is not as though God made some kind of mistake here. And a matter of fact, when we begin to dig deeper, we find out, well, there's actually no contradiction at all. Let's look at verse 4 in chapter 2. Look at verse 4. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, Moses starts out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and this is what he writes down. He says, these are the generations. You're one, some translations may say, this is the account of. Now, that word generations, or the word account, depending on your translation, that is a Hebrew word, toledoth. Now, toledoth is used 13 times in the book of Genesis, and this is why it's important. It's important because everywhere else in the book of Genesis, it's relating to offspring of some particular family line. So the next time we will see Toledoth is in Adam's family line. So we have Adam, and he begat, and they begat, and they begat, and we have kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, and the whole family line of Adam is going to be laid out for us. We'll see it again when we get to Noah. We'll see the Toledoth of Noah, the account of Noah's life, or the genealogy of Noah. That is used 13 times. The last time we will see it in Genesis is the life or the account of or the genealogy of Jacob, the 12 tribes. Now, why is it important? Well, everywhere in the book of Genesis, except for right here in verse 4, it is relating to the offspring or the genealogy. But notice here how Toledoth is used. Verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Now, that's odd. In other words, the author here is saying that the genealogy that came out of the heavens and the earth, get this, is none other than you. What I've been saying for the last couple of weeks is that all of God's creation, the atmosphere, the water, the land, the vegetation, the trees, the plants, the animals, the birds, the fish, has all been in preparation for God's prized creation, humanity. And here, here what Moses does is he says, this is the outcome of the six days of creation. The outcome of the creation was those who would be placed in the garden who bear the abago day, Latin for image bears. In other words, that humanity is unique from everything else that God created. Get this. Not only are you one of a kind, not only is there no one ever going to be born just like you. Isn't that an incredible thought? But of all the, the millions and even there's 7 billion people on the planet right now, and if we go back in, in history and we go forward in time, there's never going to be another person like you. Not your personality, the way you respond, the, the, the who you are. And, and in God's incredible, imaginative, beauty, majestic creation, that every single human being is created by his hands within our mother's womb with purpose, with meaning. And get this, there'll never be another one like you. And so the author God, the author, wants to bring our attention to the sixth day of creation. So what we have in chapter 2, verses 4 and following, is not a re-accounting of the creation event. What it is, is the author, under God's direction, focusing in on the sixth day of creation, because it's on the sixth day that the pinnacle of God's creation came to be. So in these verses, if we read on, it seems like we have... Well, some contradiction. Look at verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. That is exactly right. God created the vegetation on day 3. Adam was not created till day 6, so there was no one to work the ground. Now, notice what the author is doing. He is focusing our attention on how the creation comes together in this single moment in time in the creation of Adam and, of course, Eve. Verse uh, 6, And a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed life into his nostrils. In other words, in these two verses, 6 and 7, we have multiple days of creation that are passing by. He's simply giving us an overview. He's not giving us a day-to-day -day account of the creation. He's already done that in chapter 1. In chapter 2, his purpose is the generations that flowed out of this beautiful creation. Verse 8, and the Lord planted a garden in Eden. When did he do that? He did that on day 3. It's not as though God started up some new creative activity here. 
What he's saying is, is that in the creation account, God created all of these things just as he said in those six days. And what he's doing is bringing our focus in on the pinnacle of that creation and how that God put all that together, well, with you and I in mind. So we don't really have a contradiction here. What we have is an overview, and the focus is going to be on day six. God creates a perfect environment for his prized creation to thrive. But you and I know, at least I can't imagine you don't know this, something happened. We're not in a perfect environment anymore. Now, what you're going to have to do is you're going to be patient with me because we're going to need to cover that next week. Next week we have the fall. And that's going to help us piece together what is wrong with the world right now. Matter of fact, not only what's wrong with the world, but what's wrong inside your home. What's wrong inside of your mind, the way you think, the things that you think about. You're going to have to be patient with me and wait for that next week. For today's purposes, what I want to show you is how God created it at the very beginning. That it was perfect. It was incredible. And then next week we'll be able to see the contrast of just how far things have went wrong. Have you ever thought about your destiny? You ever thought about that? You ever thought about that word, destiny? I mean, the world says, you might hear someone say, your destiny is to become this, right? And, and when they use the word destiny, they're talking about some power that is guiding your life towards some end. So if you're going to reach your destiny of being you know, a, a great musician or a, a great author or a, you're going to be a great business leader one day. People will say that is your destiny because they see some things in your life, but at the same time they're saying that some other power is guiding it. Destiny is very different than destination. A destination is the place in which you arrive, right? But today I want to talk with you a little bit about destiny. God's destiny. Because if, if God put all this together with such beauty and such order, the lie that many, of you, that many of you are believing right now is that God has forgotten about you, that he has no purpose for you, that your life is useless because of the mistakes you've made, the roads you've had to travel, that, that this idea of a God who loves and a God who, a God who knows, that you've forgotten about it, you've abandoned it. So this morning, I want to bring you back to what God intended all along and how that God sets the parameters on what a full life is to look like. And the further we get away from that, well, the more chaos we are living in. So the first thing I want to show you this morning is our destiny is to live in God's perfect world. Now, that perfect world that we, well, the world we're in today, that is, is less than perfect. But let me, let me show you how God created everything in this initial environment for it to be absolutely perfect for Adam and Eve to thrive. So the first thing I want to show you is that in verse 9, if you pick it up there, verse 9, it says, And out of the ground the Lord made spring up every tree that is pleasant for sight and good for food, the tree of life in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the first thing we see is within this garden environment that God created, Adam and Eve had all of their needs met. They could have all the food that they needed to survive and to thrive. They had all the water that they needed. They had safety. They had security. They had protection. They, they were not embarrassed because they were naked. They didn't even realize that. They were innocent. And God has placed them in a garden that completely and perfectly sustains them. But not only that, as Adam and Eve would walk through this garden, they would see the beauty of God's creation. And, and everything that they would see, from the flowers to the tiger to the sun to the, to the plants that they were harvesting for food, the seeds that they saw, the fruit that was being born on those trees, everything that they saw pointed them back to the God who created them. The beautiful thing about that is, is that hasn't changed. From a rose that you look at to that infant that you hold in your arms to the sun rise this morning through all the fog to the powerful thunderstorms that raged over your house the last few days. Every bit of that testifies to a powerful, majestic, holy God. And get this, a God who knows you by name, a God who knows the hairs on your head, a God who knows the very contents of your heart, a God who knows your brokenness, your pain, and what you're going through right now, knows it intimately. 
that God created this environment that Adam and Eve could, could thrive. There was fruit in abundance, water flowing. It even says that there were precious stones, even, even gold. So not only was it created with, with provision, but it was created with great beauty. I, I've always been amazed by this, that, that the beauty of God's creation, for most of human history, we've been completely unaware of just how beautiful it is. For, for most people in, in times past, you lived in one area, you never traveled anywhere. For, before, we got, before we had the ability to fly, you couldn't fly over the landscape and see it, so people were confined to one little area. We didn't have powerful telescopes that could look off into the cosmos and see just how massive this entire cosmos is. We had no ability to see that, and even to this day, with all our technology, we still have not laid eyes on the grandeur of the cosmos. From the intricacies of a sail, it would, be, it would be a long, long march in human history before we could have a telescope that could look at a human sail. And then when we would look inside of that sail, we would find a machine that is so intricate that, that there's no way humanity could have ever come up with something so grand and glorious in such a small space. And then we would build a telescope that could look out into the, into the sky and look out into the cosmos, and we could find planets out there that are so big that the earth could fit inside of it millions of times, massive. And all of that was meant that when we would discover it, and as we're still discovering, that we would sit back in our chair and go, just like we sung this morning, what a mighty God we serve. And yet, in all of that, what have we done? We've denied the very God who created it. And there is danger involved when you deny the God of creation. So God, first of all, our destiny was to, to live in a perfect world. That was, that was what God meant for us. But not only that, but we were to live in, in relationship to all of his creation. Now, this, this is what I've always found just amazing with this text is that not only did God create this, this universe and this planet and the vegetation and the animals and the birds and the fish, but then he takes man and he says to man, he says to humanity, now I'm going to give you dominion over that. In other words, because God gave something to us that he did not give to the animals. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. It's the image of God. What does that mean? Well, God breathed life into Adam. But also for us, when we when we were conceived, we were given a soul spirit. We were given the ability to, to reason. We were given the, some of the attributes of God himself. That God himself has these attributes, and, and he decided that in all of his creation, he was going to share some of those attributes with us. And that's why the only part of creation that is told to exert dominion or leadership are those who bear his image. He didn't give that to the animals. He didn't give it to anything else. He gave it to humanity, and he says to humanity, in my stead, I want you to steward the earth. I want you to use the resources that I've given you. I want you to lead. I want you to, to bring, uh, to use the resources that I've given you on the planet to do incredible things. I mean, think about it. In the Roman Empire, for much of that Roman Empire, greatest empire the world's ever seen. And then they begin to do something the world had not seen before. They begin to build roads all over the Roman Empire. I mean, I'm talking about paved roads. I'm talking about roads where they can move large amounts of military all over the Roman Empire. We actually have interstate systems, road systems that our systems are based off of today. From Roman times, we have the Romans using resources and building roads, building buildings, building cathedrals, building all kinds of things all over the Roman Empire. That as they begin to use the resources that God gave them, they were able to manipulate these resources and show dominion and leadership and stewardship. The animals, it says here, were also formed from the dust. If you notice this, verse 19. Now the ground, out of the ground, verse 19, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of heaven. So what you have is, is Moses now narrowing down and giving us specifics as to what happened during those creation days that not only was Adam formed from the dirt, but also the animals. But the difference between us and the animals is that we've been giving the breath of life, the imago Dei, the image of God. That separates us from the animal kingdom. I think I've mentioned this to you before. I've always been intrigued when I would go to the Ashborough Zoo. 
And you would sit there in Ashburn Zoo, and I, I'd go to the chimpanzee exhibit, right? Big glass wall, and I'm sitting there watching the chimpanzee. I just think it's intriguing, right? These the chimpanzees are in there, also the gorilla exhibit, and 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 those those animals look at you like none like unlike any other animal looks at you. Like the chimpanzee or the gorilla, when they look at you, it's almost like they're looking through you. You know, they're standing up on two legs and they're walking around. It's almost a little bit unnerving. And then when you think about how that we've been told that, that we're nothing more than an advanced ape, basically, which is completely a lie. But when I look in that pen, I'm thinking, well, if these, if these apes, if these chimpanzees have the same abilities that I have, then why are they not breaking out of here? Why are they not picking a lot? Why are they not building a computer? Why are they not building a house inside this thing? Why are they not doing what you would expect humans to do if they were trapped? You know why we don't see that? Because they don't bear the image of God. There is a difference between humanity and the animal kingdom by God's design. So here we have... God's destiny to live in a perfect world, to, to interact with the creation and, and, and bring, well, and bring dominion to that. But not only dominion to creation, but notice this, communion with him. What always blows my mind about the creation events is just how intimately God is involved in it. That here we see God taking dirt forming it into a man. Now, God could have created humanity by the snap of his fingers, by the word of his mouth. He could have just simply said, let it be, and it would, it would be that way, just like he did with the sun and the moon and the stars, but not with humanity. You see, with humanity, what he does is he, he takes his very hands and he forms man out of the dirt. Now, get this. It says that he breathes the breath of life into his nostrils. It gives us the imagery of God being face-to-face -face with the dirt man and breathing life into him, giving him a soul and a spirit, giving him the ability to reason and to figure things out, to separate us from the rest of creation. But God didn't do that by the snap of his fingers. He did it by the molding of his very hands with love and care, intimacy. He could have spoke it into existence, but in this moment, no, unlike anything else in creation, he stops and he puts his hands to the very task of creating his prized creation. Then when it comes time for Adam to have someone like him, look at the intimacy that's involved here. So Adam Adam is naming the animals, right? So, so get this imagery. Here, here's, here's God, and, I, and the imagery gives us as though God is kind of sitting off to the side watching this. It, it says that it bring, brings pleasure to God to see Adam showing that dominion over the animal kingdom. So what does God do? God brings the animals to Adam. Adam is sitting over here on a stump, I guess. I don't know. God's sitting over here off to the side. It's incredible. And, and, and Adam sees this animal, and he names this animal this, and sitting over here is God smiling. Because Adam is living out his purpose, following what God had told him to do. But as Adam does this work while God is watching and participating in this, Adam comes to a realization, something that God already knew. He realizes that there's nothing else on this planet like him. No other animal. And Adam recognizes that there's a difference between him and the, human, and the, and the animal kingdom. He notices that, that there's no way that he can have true communion with these animals because they're different than him. So there, there is this loss in Adam's life. There's something missing in Adam's life. God already knew it. So God puts Adam to sleep. And he opens up Adam's side and he, he takes a rib from Adam's side and covers it back over with flesh. The first surgery in humanity, right? God performed that. And God goes over here and he creates woman with this rib. Now woman also bears the image of God. There is nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in this creation account where, where men are here and women are here. I want you to hear me very clearly on this. That before the throne of God in his creation account and all of Scripture, there is no men here and women here. We are created with his image, with his hands, with intimacy and beauty, but we are equal before God, men and women. And women bear the image of God. And notice this, we have different roles that God has for us. And one of those roles that God gave 
to women was to be a helper to Adam, to her husband. Not that she is somehow less than, but that she fulfills a specific role in Adam's life. You see, Adam was missing some things in, her li in his life, and guess what God did? God said, I'm going to make up those things with someone like you. And through marriage, through oneness, she is going to fulfill those things that are missing in your life, and you're going to be able to fulfill those things that are missing in her life, and together you're going to become one. How beautiful that is. How amazing that is. But not only are they meant to have close communion with one another, but close communion with God. You see, God would come and walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. And he would walk along, and I would always imagine this in my head, that he would walk along and point to the, the fruit that's falling off this tree over here. So you see how I made that? And he would maybe break open the fruit and show it to Adam and Eve, show them that, that it's good to eat and that, that God created all of this for them. The very thing that you have longed for your entire existence is to know God on that level. Maybe you didn't realize it was God that you need in your life. Maybe you don't even realize it even now. Because you think you're going to figure it all out. I'm going to fix my problems. I don't need some God out there. I can take care of myself. That rugged individualism we've been taught in American culture, can I just tell you it's a lie? You need somebody greater than yourself. You don't have what it takes to fix those problems you've got. And, and maybe in this part of your life, everything's going great. You've got a control on everything. Let me tell you, there's going to come problems in your life that you cannot handle. And if all you have to rely on is yourself, it's going to be very, very difficult, if not impossible, for you to be able to move forward. Close communion with God. And then, and then God says here that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Look at this. They shall become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. There is a oneness in marriage. Oneness physically, emotionally, spiritually. Now, if I have a couple come to me, married couple, and they come to me and say, look, we're having trouble in our marriage. And maybe, maybe the issue that they're having is one spouse or the other has decided that they found that the grass is greener somewhere else. They've decided that, that they're going to step out on the relationship because they found somebody different. The Bible has a word for that. It's called adultery. And, and when I have either one, usually the first person to contact me is the one who's been hurt devastatingly, just destroyed over this. And if I, can, if I can get both of them in the same room, I have showed this illustration I don't know how many times, but I think it helps illustrate what, what the Bible's talking about here. Is that when we commit ourselves in marriage to another human being, we become one with that person. Like this piece of paper. We become one. One spiritually, one physically, one emotionally. It's not that we were perfect in that oneness. There's, tr there's strife and difficulty and trouble. And, and after the first two years of marriage, all that kind of shows up, right? The honeymoon's over. Sometimes it lasts less than two years. But nonetheless, you come to that where it's the day in, day out living as husband and wife, right? But when somebody decides to step out, when somebody decides that the grass is greener, let me tell you what that does. Imagine this is your marriage. When somebody steps out, this is what happens. One person, one unity, one marriage, one person is now torn back into two. Something God never intended. And you wonder why there's so much pain and hurt, not just on the person that, 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 that was wrong, but also on the person who decided to step out because they think they're finding something out there that they don't already have in the marriage God's already given them. So what you have are two people who are, well, jagged-edged, hurt, pain, and destruction. And God says that in marriage we become one. And he says that oneness is meant to last until death parts you. And God designed that in the creation order. It, look, marriage precedes the church. Marriage precedes the law. Marriage precedes Israel. The very first thing that God says is that Two people shall become one, and they will remain faithful to one another. And we live in an age where that is under attack on every possible front. 
How do we find out? How do people find out how the grass is greener? Oftentimes, I found through social media, of all things, somebody in your old life, somebody you used to date way back there, somebody you thought was the one who was not the one, shows back up in your life through a private message in your, in your inbox. And you look at that and go, wow, I hadn't, I hadn't seen him or her in a long time. I wonder how they're doing. You start looking at the profile. Next thing you know, you start up a conversation. And next thing you know, you're having a lot of conversation. Next thing you know, you're sharing stuff with that person that is only meant to be shared with the person you are one with. And the next thing you know, there's a meeting that happens. And now you've become one with someone else and destroyed the very thing that Christ has called you to live out within his economy, his world, what he said, this is what's best for you. I am thankful to say that, that God has healed marriages. I am thankful that, that there have been, there's people all through this church who, who decided to do the hard work of healing their marriage and now have become one again. Praise God for that. Because they're all through this church, not just because of adultery, because of other things where oneness was being threatened and that they made the commitment to work through it and they did and God forgave and the spouse forgave. Their marriage is strong as now as it's ever been. Thank God for that. That is a miraculous work of God's grace and I'm proud of them. I'm proud to be their pastor and I'm proud to see how they're thriving. But nonetheless, right here in the opening scripture of the Bible, the entire canon of scripture, what do we have God doing? God's saying there is to be communion between one man and one woman and that communion is then to be with me in beauty and in love and an environment that I've created for it. And get this, finally. So God created us to be in a perfect environment. Our destiny is to be in that environment. Our, our destiny is to, to, be, to show dominion as image bearers upon the planet, to, to, to steward God's resources, to, to be in communion with one another and to be in communion with God. And then finally, get this, you've got to understand this. All of this is on his terms. This is where we, this is what's going to move us towards the fall, okay? It's on his terms. Because you see, God is the owner of the universe. He called it into existence. And get this, he gets to decide what is true and what is wrong. He gets to decide what is right and what is wrong. He gets to decide for his planet and for his cosmos and for his prized creation. He gets to decide for us what is right and wrong. You don't get to decide that. Makes sense, right? If he's the owner, he gets to decide how it's going to operate. And we, as his prized creation, have the ability in the Imago Dei, the image of God, to choose whether we're going to submit to him or go our own way. It's on his terms. You may not like how he defined marriage. You, you may not like how he's set up the world. Well, it doesn't matter how you feel about it. It's his, and he calls the shots. Not you, not me. And that leads us to begin to kind of flesh out, then what is living within his confines? What does it mean living within his principles? Within this garden, God placed two trees that he names. And right here in this text, he calls them out. He, he says there's one tree called the tree of life. There's another tree called the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the second tree is going to be, well, both trees are going to be rather important next week. So I just want to kind of hit the surface here. So in the middle of this garden, I think they were right in the middle of the garden. God says that in this garden, they can eat anything they want except for this one tree. Now, this one tree, I don't think that the fruit on that tree was poison. I don't think the, the fruit on that tree was anything really any different than any other fruit in the garden other than the fact that this tree represented God's law. In other words, humanity, Adam and Eve, you have the freedom in this garden, all the freedom you want. But that one tree right over there, don't eat it. If you do, you will surely die. Now, next week, we're going to unpack a little bit more about what this tree is. Now, the other tree, the tree of life, as we look at Scripture, we look at what happens next week. Apparently, the tree of life was a tree that they could eat from, and it would give them perpetual human life. Next week, the, one of the reasons that they have to be kicked out of the garden is because of the tree of life. We'll talk about it next week. But God sets up inside this garden because he owns it. He says, there's this one tree, you can't eat from it. 
Now, what's amazing about that is, is that Adam and Eve are going to rebel against that one only command that they had only one, one commandment, and they couldn't keep it. The point being is that God has the right to set up his world the way he wants it. He does not consult with you. He's not concerned how you feel about it. He's not concerned about what happened to you in the past. His, his law stands. His world operates the way he wants it to operate, and he doesn't have to consult with you about that. So how do we, how do we live out Genesis 1 and 2? Well, Genesis 2 gives us that overview. It kind of culminates the whole thing. It's getting us ready for next week. And what we see this week in this text is that God created a perfect environment, but it's, well, it's going to be destroyed by one choice. But in this moment, Adam and Eve are living in perfect communion with one another. They've got all that they need to survive and to thrive. They've got God walking and talking with them. They've got God in the garden with them. It couldn't have been any more beautiful. It couldn't have been any more perfect. And from Genesis 1 and 2, here's some things that, that we can derive and learn and, and live out. First of all, humanity is given stewardship over the creation. We've been given stewardship over the creation. But here's the thing. We've been given stewardship over the creation, but we are not to be subjected to it. What do I mean by that? You've probably heard this. You're going to hear it more and more and more because we have a movement in our world that is driven by the idea of saving the environment. And it has gotten to be so outlandish and so radical that these people who are saying to us that, that humanity is the plague upon this planet. They are saying that this planet would be better off if there would be no human beings on it whatsoever. But they go even further, and they're saying that to young women and young men who are maybe married or maybe not, but they're saying to young people, do not have children. If you have children, it's going to harm the environment, and the environment is all the almost important thing in the universe. We must save the environment, so do not have children. We have young people who are having surgeries to prevent having children because they are so worried about the impact that a child is going to have on the environment. Now, does that sound exactly the opposite as what God has said to do? The first command in Scripture is go multiply, have kids. The world is saying, no, 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 don't have kids. They are a plague on society. I, am, I, I believe fully and completely Scripture from cover to cover, and this is something that I believe wholeheartedly, that God in his sovereign wisdom and grace has created a world that can sustain however many children we have. God is not ignorant. God is in control. If he created a world that can propagate food, he, can, he did it in such a way that we can go have children and not be worried about whether they're going to impact the environment or not. It's insane, folks. The abortion industry is being driven by the same thing. Let's take the lives of the children in the womb so they don't harm the environment. God says exactly the opposite. Go, be fruitful, multiply. Children are a blessing from God. They are not a curse. Children are a blessing to humanity, not a curse to humanity. And anybody who says that they are is lying and they have departed from the God of this universe who says exactly the opposite. So make sure we understand we're being lied to. Humanity has given us stewardship over creation. We should take care of the environment we've been given. We should, we should be good stewards of that. We, we should, if there's an opportunity to turn the lights off in the house to save someone on the electric bill, then do it. If you're out there changing oil in your car and you drain the oil in your oil pan, don't go pour it over in the ditch. That's bad stewardship, okay? Recycle. That's great, wonderful. It's good stewardship. But any, any environmentalism that takes us away from God's original design and transplants lies into our life should be avoided, ignored, and left to the side. Okay? Secondly, humanity is designed to honor our Creator, but not to usurp Him. What do I mean by that? We are meant, created by God, to commune with Him. Now, the fall, which we'll talk about next week, has... Well, it's marred everything. 
but we still are born with a desire to want to pursue a creator. Now, in societies all over the world, no telling how they define God, but there's something inside humanity all over the globe that makes us want to pursue something greater than ourselves. Well, that was God's intent. But it was never God's intent that humanity will become gods themselves. What do I mean by that? We live in a culture now where we are saying, as human beings, we get to define what is true and what is false. We, we get to define our, our destinies. That there, there is no God, and if there is, it doesn't matter. And we should decide what is right for us. Not only that, we should decide our own identity. We should decide that if I feel a certain way today, then that's what I identify as. And if I feel something different a year from now, then I can change it. Because I am in control of my life. With the staff right now, we are um, walking through some training that I, I think has already been hugely helpful for me. And the training has to deal with the gender identity movement. Because as a church, I want, I want you to hear me very clearly on this. If there are people out there in our community who are confused about their gender, I want them here. I want you to be sure you hear me on this. I want them to hear the gospel. I want them to hear about the creation account. I want them to know that God created them as either male or female, and they can know whom they are, who they are and to whom they belong. So bring them here. But I think our staff, we all kind of came to the place where we need some more training on this to understand how to interact with folks who are struggling with gender identity. The idea is now that your biological gender is one thing, but your, your gender that you identify as is something different, that, they, that biology doesn't, doesn't dictate your choices. In other words, we can choose even in respect of or even in disregard to what biology clearly has said. And so what happens in that moment is the world culture has determined that we are in control, that we are gods, we get to determine who we are down to our very identity. Now, I want you to hear something very clearly this morning, that when, when God was forming you in your mother's womb, when he was knitting you together in your mother's womb, God did not make a mistake. He did not mess up and put a female in a male's body or a male in a female's body. God did not do that because God cannot do that. He is perfect. So if you are tall and you wish you were short, if you were short and you wish you were tall, if you are blonde and wish you were brunette or you're a redhead and wish you were something else, you look in the mirror and you see someone who is overweight or you look in the mirror and you see someone who is skinny, I'm here to tell you this morning that how God created you is exactly what God had in mind. And you should... Rejoice in that. I told the first service that I accepted a long time ago that I was never going to be a 10. <laughs> and I was never going to be an NBA basketball player. I accepted that. Why? Well, look at me. You can pretty well tell why, right? I'm terrible at basketball. I, I, I knew that there were things in my life that I was never going to be. But I also realized that God had something for me to live out, and whatever God had for me had to be the best. And it was, and it is, and it has been. Absolutely, completely. And so it is with you. You're not a God. You can't change your identity. There are things in life you cannot change. It doesn't matter how much surgery you have, how many medications you take, doesn't matter if you change your pronouns or your name, there are things about your life you cannot change because you are not God. But God in his perfect grace and his perfect sovereignty said in that moment when he was knitting you together, I have a plan and a purpose for your life and the height you will be, the gender you will be, how you will look, how you will talk, the time in which you will be born, the people you will be born to, the community that you will live in. Every bit of that was part of God's work in your life. Should we embrace that? Yes, we should. Absolutely we should. Humanity is designed to honor our creator, not to usurp him, not to become gods ourselves. Third, humanity is to embrace the marriage design, not corrupt it. Listen, if you're not married this morning, 
don't you hear me say that you're somehow less than. If you've been through a divorce, you've been through a horrible situation, don't, don't, don't you hear me saying that you're somehow less than. But because of where the text goes, I need to talk about marriage for just a moment. Marriage meant to be one. Marriage meant to be two people who come together in oneness, stay together until death parts them. That is God's plan. That is his will. That is his purpose. That, that, is, that is how... That is how God intends to bring fruit from your marriage, fruit from your life, and this form of the command that God says, go have some children. That's a blessing. Humanity has been given a principle in marriage, and it is one man and one woman and nothing else. You know, that one man and that one man and that one woman together till death parts them is God's design for marriage. Now, thankfully, some of you went through some hard times. Maybe you're in your second marriage or your third marriage, and God has blessed that. God, to God be the glory for that. Thank God for that. But the reality is, all the way back in the garden, all the way back in this perfect environment, it was God's intent that one man and one woman come together in oneness. Fourth, humanity is to be fruitful and multiply. But listen, within the confines of marriage. All right, so here, all right, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go old school on you. You're going to accuse me of being a Puritan or whatever. You're going you're gonna to accuse me of being, ooh, sanctimonious and religious. But here it is. I'm going to put it out there. It's going to be mind-blowing for our young people. Please lean in. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. It's going to embarrass you, but it's okay. Sex is meant for marriage only. Now we can hear that pin drop. Is the pastor talking about that this morning? Yes, he is. Because he's trying to help you not go down a path that's going to bring destruction into your life. When God created the idea of physical intimacy, union between a man and a woman, he meant that within the confines of marriage. And I, if, if we had the freedom to do it and you had the, the bravery to do it, boy, it takes some, it takes some courage to do this, but I can imagine we could have a whole slew of testimonies from people who cho chose to step out of that framework, and they will tell you the destruction that it brought into their lives. The anxiety, the depression, the hurt, the pain, the, the fact that they felt used and abused. And God's saying all along, that's never what I intended for you to start with, is that this intimacy that we're talking about is within the confines of marriage. And anything outside of that will bring chaos into your life. Fifth and finally, humanity is to celebrate our identity, not undermine it. Who you are is who God intended you to be. Embrace what God has given you as a gift. Don't try to change or become something you were never intended to be. Don't, don't, don't try to, to go out and be somebody you're seeing on YouTube. or be. God has called you to be you, and you is all you need to be. And it's there you will find purpose and meaning in your life. And especially when you put your faith in Christ, when you put your faith in him, you understand fully and completely what God's purpose and will is for your life on a whole new level than what you did before when you were lost. So let me ask you this morning, is your life in chaos? If it is, then take a look at the places in your life where you are making choices that take you outside of God's clear perfect revealed will for your life and maybe that's where we need to start thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon for more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church please check out our website hydepark.church or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist